Welcome to Let's Chat Dental with Anne Budenberg. In this series, we're going to be talking about dental careers and squiggly careers in the UK. But of course, don't forget to like, rate and review this episode. Hi, I'm Anne Budenberg and welcome to my podcast, Let's Chat Dental. So I'm joined today by Professor Rhiannon Edwards, Professor of Health Economics and the Founding Director of Health Economics Research at Bangor University. She specialises in economic evaluation of public health interventions, particularly behavioural interventions, including dentistry. So in this episode, we're going to chat about health economics, what it is, and why it's relevant to dentistry. So welcome, Rhiannon. I just want to kick off, first of all, with um, the obvious question, you know, what is health economics? Hi, Anne, and great to be here today. Thank you. So health economics is an application of, of economics, which is how we use our scarce resources in society to meet our needs and wants. And it's applied to questions about healthcare and increasingly social care as well, because they're kind of linked. So we will have, you will have known that the last few weeks have been crazy politically and also in terms of um, the markets. And people think that's what economics is and in the way it is about how the economy functions. Um, you know, we're going through a period of interest rate increase, of inflation. These are all about how the, the economy works, but we can also apply principles of economics to particular topics like um, labour economics, um, international economics, agricultural economics, and then there's health economics. And so this has very much grown out of, <clears throat> in the UK, the UK having a national health service, and also the need for us to um, think about how to use scarce resources in society and meet those growing needs, which have come about largely through an aging population, medical advance, and really a more, if you like, a more informed, demanding patient population um, who, who have the internet, can do their own researching. And uh, so, you know, we'll come and turf up at the GP and, and ask for particular um, treatments or referrals. And so, Bodies like the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence have been set up in a way to provide an, an evidence scrutiny of new medicines coming in, new devices, and pro provide guidelines on what is um, effective and cost-effective care at a population level. Wow. Okay. So there's um there's a good definition what a challenge that that is um so um just going backtracking slightly so you know how did you get into this field and i suppose secondly what is your career background right so i did economics at university and then i was lucky enough to go out to calgary to do my master's degree on a kind of teaching scholarship uh, in the early 1990s and um, I got interested in health economics and my dad was a doctor and my mum was a physiotherapist so I kind of heard all these discussions on the day-to-day -day breakfast table basis of the challenges of the NHS. I then saw something of the Canadian 
system, some of the similarities and differences and challenges. And I came back to the UK and wanted to do a PhD and went to York, which was and still is really a big leading light in health economics. And I did my PhD on um, how we should prioritise NHS waiting lists. And it's really quite interesting that, you know, 30 years on, we're still faced with massive waiting lists in the NHS and in dental care uh, for elective care. And how on earth do we prioritise those on the basis of ability to benefit or how long you've been waiting or whether you have some sort of social caring role that means you should be um, a high priority there are or whether you're going to meet some targets which are set by government really interesting so so i'm quite pleased because i've now got some master students studying and continuing that topic both here and in australia so quite quite cool really uh, almost feels a bit like coming full circle really and still studying these things which are a fallout from the fact that our nhs is about having access to care on the ability on the um, basis of need, not the ability and uh, not on the willingness and ability to pay. So if you move a market is a rationing mechanism. And, you know, I guess we know this in dentistry too. price is a factor of people's ability to seek and access and gain care. And if you move away from that and you move to a public system, then there's element of waiting. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting, actually, looking at different countries, and I suppose how their health system is set up is quite different to the UK. Um, I suppose we're quite unique in having the NHS, so public system, because where you are in Canada or Australia, very much insurance based systems, paying systems. So, you know, again, it's, it, it's coming at different perspectives completely, isn't it? Well, I, I challenge you a little bit, Anne, because I think there are similarities. Um, you know, social insurance, voluntary insurance and our NHS tax funded system have got more in common than they have in being different because they're trying to aim for universal coverage. OK, so the aim is to cover the whole population. And Canada has quite a similar system to the NHS. And you're quite right. Other countries have more insurance based systems. You know, the big standouts, I suppose, are things like the United States that has much more of an um, employer led system with insurance uh, and, and a lot of uninsured people. And that's why Obama brought in Obamacare to try and extend coverage to a lot of previously uninsured people. But let's not be fooled. We have co-payments in the NHS uh, to do with um, uh, prescriptions in England, not in Wales, where I am and Scotland. And then, of course, there are there are co-payments in dentistry, aren't there? So, you know, it's uh, it's not all free. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 that has changed dramatically from when I qualified to where we are now with the charges, the patient charges are, you know, relatively depending on what you have. But the higher band is a significant amount of money. Um, and we've got the other issue at the moment where we've got a divided system. We've got an awful lot of people moving from the NHS system, dentists, into the private sector. So that's, you know, reducing the resource within the NHS in terms of access, which you're very aware of. That's very interesting because what, what health economists look at is both supply side aspects about training 
about reimbursement, about contracts, and then they also look at the demand side, which is about people co-producing their own health and well-being. Yeah, so really interesting. Yeah, so moving on to focusing on dentistry, um, just to ask you, so how have you actually been involved um, so far with the dental field and dental research? Well, I, I think it, it, at, a, at a public health population level, you know, we know that um, extractions are the single biggest reason for um, hospitalisation of children under the age of 11, costing over £205 million a year to the NHS. That is totally preventable. And um, my own work, in a way, has been at that population strategy level, both within Wales and England, but it's also been in terms of um, thinking about individual trials, so randomised controlled trials in the area of dentistry. And I've worked with you know, leading uh, lights in this area, like um, Professor Cynthia Pine and colleagues. And we worked on the dental recurse study, looking at motivational interviewing by dental nurses, trying to get parents to um, you know, prevent such dental caries. And that study was published in earlier this year in 2022 in um, the European Journal of Applied Health Economics. And really that showed some very positive um, cost saving to the NHS and improvements in dental quality of life. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we'll, we will have that in the resources. So that's a really interesting paper and um, published, I think you said January of this year. Um, when I read it, I thought a lot of it obviously is about um, behaviour change and, you know, it's got that sort of health coaching um, aspect to it. You always wonder where that goes next in that kind of study. Well, I think the evidence base then hopefully gets sort of sucked in by local public health dentistry services and and commissioning but as you say you know there's a lot of firefighting going on on the ground with just getting through the caseload of patients every day um which which and you know it's interesting in the nhs we pet spend five percent on prevention of the nhs budget just five percent okay so it is very difficult and that's not in dentistry that's across the board and it is very very difficult to move that to a more preventive agenda because you know it's the ambulances queuing up outside accident emergency which get into the newspapers it's very difficult to shift from uh, dealing with the the, the, the urgent now to the prevention but really that is a false economy if you take a, a longer time horizon than this year or next year's budget yeah absolutely I mean we've started using some health coaching and I know that's on the agenda of the um, health service NHS framework. And there are health coaches in, in patches of the country, but it's it's still a very new thing. But it seems to be the only way if you can get people to support people in changing their behaviour. Um, well, what we've learned really is the importance of neighbourhood and context when we think about interventions. This is the work of Professor Sir Michael Marmot. Um, the importance of, uh, if you like, neighbourhoods in socioeconomic um, gradient and the huge difference in life expectancy that we see across the country in different areas. But that then feeds into how you design either universal or targeted interventions that they have to be so context specific 
culturally context specific. Yeah. I suppose um, in the in the dental field, it's not something we really have as part of our curriculum. Um, I don't know of many dentists who've gone into that. Obviously, it's an aspect of public health. Um, but again, it's it, it's hugely important. And, uh, you know, I'm just wondering what aspects of health economics could be included or do you think it should be included in the undergraduate curriculum? I do. I think an understanding of health economics is really important um, at undergraduate level to understand that, you know, as well as being practitioners of treating one person at a time, that you're also custodians of resources across the board at some level within a practice or at a wider level. And it really is um, important that people understand really principles of um, opportunity cost which is the idea of once we've spent money once um, it isn't there anymore now we know that with our own day-to-day diary management or clinic management but also in terms of um, staff substitution or staffing and and then also to think about um, really some ideas of, of prevention versus cure and what can be done and the, promoting this idea of co-production that patients take responsibility for their own well-being um, as, as far as is possible given their own circumstances as well and things like health literacy so there's an awful lot that can be taught really to make um, the young uh, dentist interested in in research hopefully in the future career but also to, to make it a really rewarding career um, and uh, promote a holistic approach to 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 dental hygiene, dental care, and the whole person really. I mean, it's about diet as well as other things, exercise, and and general well-being as well as um, specific dental dental health. Actually, just I just want to pick up on um, health literacy because this has come up um, when I've just been speaking to new graduates recently about. The, the patients you know when they look at the medical history when they come in and obviously there there's an assumption that they understand what you're asking them so where do you think we are on health literacy across the population well I think there are some real problems with um, intergenerational poverty and health literacy and we mustn't underestimate the uh you know, the, the problems of 10 years of austerity, and now we're facing these um, awful problems of fuel cost increases and food in, uh, inflation. So I think the, 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 the context of family, understanding where families are at and where dental hygiene routines might come in, and then also trying to understand the place of schools as a place for universal um health promotion. I find it very interesting that, you know, uh, sometimes um, toothbrushes and, and toothpaste are given out in schools. And then you think, well, you know, there'll be a lot of parents who are already doing that, but actually it's the, it's probably the best way of reaching the hard to reach children and families and trying to promote health literacy almost upwards through the family, not downwards. Yes. Yep. Yep. That makes sense. But early, early years, kind of when they soak it all in all that information um so I, I suppose that leads on to you know if if it was done at undergraduate level it could spark an interest for somebody and storing that away thinking you know maybe that's something I can do in the future um so in terms of um dental careers it's you know it's very relevant it's very broad and interesting 
because of course one problem we have is that people um, majority people go into general dental practice primary care and they're often unsure once they've been in there a while how they, how they diversify so and the other point is um, someone might um, suffer ill health or just decide that you know it's not for them anymore and they struggle with those career options so I suppose the question is if a dentist did want to diversify might just want to do a day a week or their work how do they get into that field well I would I work in a university which has close links with our in um, health board in North Wales um, it's slightly different from in England but I would I would encourage anybody with any interest in research to look up just just google your local dental research at, at a local university and then drop them a line and say, look, you know, I'd be happy to participate. We, we are always looking for what's called PPI, which is patient and public um, involvement, but also professional involvement in research studies. And you can actually have some of your time bought out on a grant application. This sort of thing doesn't happen overnight. You know, sometimes this might take a six months or a year lead in. But, you know, just this week, we've needed a clinical lead on a grant proposal for the patient and public um, benefit. Uh, round of Welsh government funding so we, we we at a university could not put that bid in without a clinical lead and we we got an interested dentist to do that and that has been fantastic that's the beginning of a really nice collaboration if we're funded but it's a nice collaboration even if we're not funded because we might think of another project and those projects are very much looking at you know access for um, underserved communities yes which is very very hot topic at the moment um obviously yours is, relates to Wales but it's it's the same very much the same in England in certain areas as well of course so I mean in terms of that diversifying your career I personally have always found you know just sometimes that day out just is enough to just you know rekindle um, your your whole kind of um, view on dentistry and I think there's probably good evidence to show that variety in your dental career is likely to keep you happier and also keep you in the career for longer you know I think most of us are probably going to work longer anyway um so I I don't know what your view is on that well I know I've gone down the coaching executive coaching and mentoring line at work I found it really interesting doing that looking at people's progressions and you know now it is perfectly possible uh, to have a portfolio career sometimes part of that portfolio is childcare or care of elderly relatives. So, you know, the, the portfolio can be uh, one of home responsibilities and work responsibilities, but it all, also can involve some um, teaching, you know, teaching at your local university, or it might also involve becoming involved in research, or even you might decide you want to do a master's. There is such a thing as a master's by research now. So if you had a really good research idea, you could um, sign up to do a master's at a university we certainly offer them in health economics of um, public health which covers dentistry at Bangor University and we can put the links in the notes to accompany the podcast and really um, you know then you can pursue your project with some supervision part-time over two years and you gain um, methods you know qualitative or quantitative methods support and you might then be publishing papers and that might really excite a young person who's in you know early or mid career or somebody at the end of their career who who just wants to do something a bit different 
Yes, no, absolutely. Um, I suppose, so that was the master's programme. Do you have um, sort of a range of programmes? So if someone didn't want to, you know, go straight into the master's programme, is there a PG cert or, um, you know, is there a sort of an entry level that they could do with you? Well, every year we do a free online course, which again, we can probably put some notes in, which is an, on um, an introduction to applied health economics for public health practitioners and that does co cover dentists I think that's the most accessible place that's a two morning short course um, and also I think it probably would also run through our um, our, our uh, intensive learning academy at Bangor but there are lots I'm not just selling Bangor University there are lots of courses around and, and actually I'll try and put a few more links in for you of options that might be interesting. The other thing, if someone really wants sort of career change is to go into, do a master's of public health and go into public health dentistry, which is which is really important. You know, it's, it's questions about fluoridation in water, it's questions about access, need, commissioning. Um, you know, it should be seen as quite a good career. Um, I'm not sure whether it is, but you know, there is, I think, try and get inspired and talk to people ahead of the game. You know, and and um, see what what are what are out there as options. But a portfolio career can be really fantastic, as you were suggesting, Anne. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, do you think when some some areas of dentistry and medicine there are huge gaps, there's a real need for more people doing your kind of work? Are you are you needing? Are you always needing more people, or would that presume you'd need funding of course well you, you you'd get your clinical colleagues to come in at the funding application phase and I think it's really interesting it's not there's a real spectrum of research needed there's research to understand behavioral interventions which is a bit like the dental rico study we talked about and then there are interventions to look at um the private public mix and the you know what how how well or not the dental contracts working there's there's all sorts of policy research. There's also sort of schools-based research in schools, in in promotion and dental care promotion. So there's all sorts of research that and and you know it's about tapping into the right people. I think in terms of um, link, linking linking up. And I mean one of the things that you could do. I mean if so, I'll give you a, a, a similarity with the Faculty of Public Health where I'm an honorary member. I run a journal club for public health people interested in health economics. Now I'm I'm thinking that maybe if if you have a group um, of dentists who are interested in health economics, it might be possible to set something similar up like that through one of your professional organizations, would it? Yeah. Um, th there is always offshoots within any um, I suppose one of our bodies, College of Dent of General Dentistry, um, has got lots of clinical courses but it's also got trying to develop you know support networks and um they've got um uh just actually come out with a framework for careers so from early career development to the um established and it's you know what are those key points so i think that would probably be a, a good place to put it that would sit well with what they're doing already um, and I think they're looking at mentoring as well, you know, again, mentoring at different stages of career. And I'm, I'm really happy if I can be of any help with, with any of that, uh, you know, not as an expert in about uh, dentistry particularly, but about 
you know, career progression, getting young people together, trying to get them to define their, you know, unique selling point, their USP. I mean, even simple things like setting up a work related Twitter account and saying on it, I am a jobbing dentist interested in research in uh, uh, schools based um, dental caries prevention and then following some um, interested reports and organisations, it gets you your own USP in a terribly, you know, out of acorns, you get just the beginnings of a sort of um, portfolio career, uh, even using social media in that very, very simple way. Yes, actually, that's really interesting. Uh, um, incredibly powerful way, those new ways of doing it. Um, no, that's great. Can I just ask you, I know you set up a mentoring network um, in relation to health coaching. Um and obviously mentoring in dentistry is happening um, but it's not happening for everyone and so I suppose the question is um, what did you set up and is there anything from your mentoring network that we could take across to dentistry any any sort of key key points Okay, so we have an organisation called the Health Economic Study Group of the UK with about 400 members and the meetings twice a year face to face or they were online through the pandemic. Very much for PhDs and young health economists working at universities to get together, present ongoing work. And we didn't have a mentoring scheme. So I set one up trying to put together um, young people with a mentor in a different organisation or a different institution. So someone in Nottingham might be mentored by someone in Edinburgh. Um, the idea being that that meant they were not being mentored by their line manager. They could see what's happening in other organisations. Sometimes it was about supporting them through um, promotion application or publishing their first paper or thinking about a career move or just work-life balance, actually, very important, that well-being coaching as part of that. Mm -hmm. And we've had about 40 people through, young people through that scheme. The, the, the limit is the number of senior people who are willing to give up four hours a year to do an online or face-to-face -face mentoring session. And we do train them because not all line managers are good mentors. You know, there are skills you need to learn about boundaries, about listening about um uh, uh, really you know obviously confidentiality but there's it, it, it's really empowering to go and learn about some of those skills as a more senior person and then really you can play a very big role in helping someone find the answers for themselves you know that's the point of coaching is that they might be a bit stuck and then you help them to um to find their way by using some tools you know, things like the goal, the grow model, the setting goals, reviewing realities, where you are now, uh, opportunities or obstacles, and then have you got the will to change or the, 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 the way forward. So, you know, even simple, talking through simple models like that in a mentoring or coaching setting can help people. Yes, absolutely. Really, really powerful. I mean, I think we've all had it in an informal way but I think that luxury of sitting um, with someone's undivided attention in protected time is is not something that you get very often um, so really really beneficial I just wonder whether from that you might get 
you know, the other kind of mentoring, that sort of reverse mentoring as well, you know, they usually say the mentor gets as much out of it sometimes as the mentee. Um, I don't know, did you find that? I think it's really true. And it, in a way it makes you challenge your day-to-day -day work patterns and how you do things and whether you actually can listen and do you ask powerful questions? Um, and also it's just really interesting and sometimes you recognize what someone else is going through and you think oh heck I think actually I think uh, I need to think about that so yes absolutely there's always reverse oh, uh, and, and, and another part of all this Anne is what you might call peer mentoring and I've certainly benefited from you know having a couple of sessions with other people who are professors in their 50s and you know stage of career and uh, what they're thinking about so peer mentoring is brilliant. I think that can be really helpful as well. Yes. No, I was just thinking, did you say you had 40 pairs or was yeah, it? Yeah, through yes. a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think from that 40, you could get the mentees saying, actually, I really like this as well. So that almost you could, of course, they wouldn't all, but, you know, you could increase your numbers just from that cohort as well, because they might want to mentor other people exactly there's a, there's a cascade effect isn't yeah. there they're potentially yeah. i mean i think a lot of let's be honest a lot of universities a lot of organizations are using mentoring now <clears throat> so you know i think those prints but but the training that goes hand in hand in hand with that is it skills everybody up you know it, it skills everybody up there are quite a lot of online free materials and um those with a cost of short courses that are run by, um, you know, Oxford, Birmingham, York, Bangor, lots of different places where it's possible to just do an introductory course in health economics if you're interested. There are some books around. I mean, we have a book which I edited, edited with um, Professor Emma McIntosh, so that's Edwards and McIntosh 2019. We'll put a link to that. I only mention that because uh, you know, it might well be in a library near you and you could borrow it. And it it it, um, it, it gives an overview of applying health economics in a in a public health setting. And it has some reference to to dentistry uh, there. And, and so, you know, I just encourage people to really think about, you know, a career is a very precious thing. I'm towards the end of it. Not quite there, but uh, and I really view it as a very, very precious thing it's been a very hard thing at times as well but where you grow through your 30 years of work and um really to make the most of it really take own it yeah, yeah. own no. your career yeah absolutely um you've got to enjoy it um it's even harder if you don't enjoy it you have to you know have a passion for it and you know i don't know maybe you knew you know at the beginning where you were heading but often we don't know where we're heading in our careers and but you know opportunities come up and sometimes you just need to grab them um and um see where it goes absolutely so thank you very much um going to draw that to a close Rhiannon and um Amy, I suppose in summary we've spoken about what health, health economics is and you know good use of using scarce resources and all the issues that go with that so it's a huge challenge 
obviously dentists are involved in this field and you can become involved in it if this is something that you think might be of of interest to you um and maybe we should think about it um being introduced earlier on if it's not introduced within undergraduate programs you know maybe early careers is 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 a really good time to sow that seed for someone you know whether they go down that route but it's there in their mind and it might just be a trigger for them for the future um I'm a big believer in mentoring and it's heartening to see it's how it's growing it probably needs to grow more and um, perhaps also we could take some of your suggestions to our sort of college of general dentistry it's a good forum for those early careers um, for introducing health economics so I'd just like to thank you very much for your time and your great insight. We will put uh, resources for all the things we've spoken about today at the end of the podcast. Please give us some feedback. Uh, the next episode, we will be speaking about mentoring specific to dentistry. Thank you very much. Let's Chat Dental with Anne Budenberg talking about dental careers and squiggly careers in the UK. Don't forget to like, rate and review this episode.